Good morning. It's good to see you all, and it is, uh, it's, it's good to be here. Andrew called um, to ask me to come, and, and I just jumped on it. What a joy to be in this place. I grew up in Dallas, and, and so I have um, just long watched uh, Munger Place, and, and um, particularly being a pastor in this area, watched its evolution from... Um, you know, it has always been a church that was deeply committed to this community, and 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 now to see it with such vibrant life and giving back to the community, and and to um, to be this this gathering place of um, uh, this community, and and to to pour out. I just I love being here, and am delighted. And a neat connection for me is that when I was ordained twenty years ago. My first appointment was at Highland Park United Methodist Church, and so uh, which planted Munger Place. And now I know some of you are doing the math and trying to figure that out. I was ordained when I was 11, so. <laughs> but I have served for 20 years in this conference and and watched, um, really, as I have had friends and colleagues who have served this great church, uh, really watched what happened with um, the, the, its evolution, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but I just um, am delighted to be here. And when Andrew said that you all would be in the midst of a series on the Holy Spirit, then I was like even more delighted because it's just one of my favorite topics. And I, um, so I'm just gonna jump in. I, uh, some of you have, have been following along, and if you haven't, if you haven't been here, or if you've missed one of Andrew's sermons, that I encourage you to go online and, and to listen. A couple of weeks ago, he talked about who the Holy Spirit is. And, um, and I'm not going to do his, his whole sermon, but just to remind us that the Holy Spirit really is what we're talking about when we talk about the presence of God with us. When we talk about the spirit of Christ or the living Christ or, um, or we talk about Jesus being in us um, and among us and the presence of Christ, that's all talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the name that we give to talk about the presence of God with us and to talk about God's work in us and in the world. So it's all kind of mysterious, and so we use the Holy Spirit to talk about that work in us and in the world. You know those moments, those moments where something happens that you know is more than the circumstances that led up to that something, or, or something happens when you know you didn't make it happen, like you may have done your best and... and or you may be in a conversation and you're bringing all that you are to that conversation or, or that circumstance, but something happens and it's more than what you brought to the table. That's the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of God at work in our lives. So last week, Andrew talked more about that work of the Spirit. And he used the Galatians passage where Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. And he's talking with them about the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit in our lives. And, and Andrew reminded us that the Spirit is at work in us all the time. And we have a choice. Are we going to trust in that Spirit? 
Or are we going to trust in the earthly things? Are we going to trust in ourselves and our stuff and the things around us? Or are we going to trust in God, in the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives? And Andrew went on to say that the choice that we make then becomes the evidence that other people see, the fruit, if you will, of that choice. And reminded us that when we choose to trust in God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that that fruit, those words that you saw on the screen, love and joy and patience and peace, we know, right? That that's what people see. And Andrew reminded us that when that fruit of the Spirit is evident in us, our good fruit, then, by the work of the Holy Spirit, produces fruit in others. So it matters. So today, we're going to talk about freedom in the Spirit. What happens when we align ourselves with the Spirit and experience that freedom that happens with the presence of the Holy Spirit? Now, we're going to turn to Jesus. And I love to, the fact that we have Jesus to turn to. And I know that sounds like an obvious thing for a preacher to say. But, but I love it because when we look at the questions we have about who God is and how God works in the world. And the, the questions are endless. Because God is quite mysterious. And when we look at all those questions and we want to figure out who God is and how God works in the world, we have Jesus to look to. Because Jesus is the picture of God at work in this world. This grace and love and forgiveness and acceptance. And that's who Jesus is. And it gives us a picture of who God is. But here's the great thing. We can also look to Jesus for a picture of who we are. Of who we are created by God and who God calls us to be. And so when we talk about freedom in the spirit and what that looks like, we're going to turn to Jesus. Now, Jesus had the spirit in him all along. And we know that because scriptures tell us that. Because right from the beginning, the angel says to Mary, you're going to have a child. And it has been knit together in your womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, one from the very beginning. And then when Jesus starts his ministry, we hear that John baptizes Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and rests on him. And we know that he has this spirit in him through his ministry, leads him into the wilderness where he is tempted. And who but the Holy Spirit tends to Jesus and is with Jesus. And then Jesus goes and does healings and miracles and all those kinds of things. And we know that it is the Holy Spirit that is leading him the whole way because Luke tells us over and over again, and then the Spirit led him here, and then the Spirit was with Jesus, and Jesus filled with the Spirit did this and all of those sorts of things, right? So we're going to read a passage of that from the Gospel of Luke right there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because Jesus tells us himself about the work of the Spirit in his life. Now what's happening is that he has gone back home. He's He's been baptized. He started his ministry. He's been out in the wilderness. He's been tempted. He has begun to do some healings and preachings and teachings, and he's gone back home. But they've all heard of what's been going on, and so they're anxious. 
They want to hear. And so Jesus goes to the home temple and he opens the scroll of Isaiah, ancient words about the Holy Spirit that are made real in Jesus in that moment. And so that's the text we're going to look. It's, it's Luke 4, and you can follow along on the screen. And Jesus says right there in his hometown, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because, now this is important, God always has a because. When you read texts, when you read scriptures and, and hear about the work of God, there's always a because. Now sometimes it's written, so that, but there's always a so that, in order to, those kinds of things. So you can always look for the so that, and that's the reason behind whatever's happening there. So, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because, because. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the Spirit is with Jesus so that he can bring good news to the poor and release to the captives. So I want us to listen well to this text. It reminds us of what the Spirit is doing. But more than that, when we look at that text, we are the recipients of that good news that Jesus brings. We are the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed. Now for some of you, you're saying, oh yeah, I am in that place. I have known poverty in my life, or I am in it now. I have known what it is to, have, to be captive, to have prison walls around me. I know what it is to be oppressed. But there are others in here, among us, who say, you know, I may not be rich, but I'm really not poor. I've never had prison walls. I don't really... You know, when Jesus is talking and saying those words, he's not really talking to me. So it's true that the vast majority of us would fall in the category, if we're looking at global economics, would fall in the category of rich. We're going to have to deal with that. And that when Jesus is talking to the rich, he's talking to us. But in these words right here, when Jesus is giving his mission, which he followed his whole life long and still today, of good news to the poor and release to the captives, he is speaking to us because we are captive. We are all captive because we are those who live in the world. Though we struggle not to be of the world, we live in the world and we live among earthly things. And we are captive in so many ways, all of us differently, but we are, we're captive. We're captive to addictions, and maybe it's not alcohol or pornography or drugs, but maybe it's an addiction to pleasing others. Maybe it's an addiction to achieving or having a certain status or to perfection. Maybe we're captive to those voices in our heads that are shaming or condemning. You know, we have our own prison walls, all of us, each and every one of us, in our own way. 
And Jesus came to free us, to free us from that captivity, to bring us fullness of joy and life, and not just life, but life abundant. That's his promise to us. That's the freedom that he offers us. And you know, we are a people who value freedom, do we not? Especially we in America. We, we hold freedom absolutely foundational for us. Our country was founded on it. It is in our DNA, away from the tyranny of Britain, no limits, no confinement. We want freedom. And we struggle today to keep that freedom. We fight for it, for ourselves and even for others. We struggle to realize it and to figure out what it looks like. We, for 200 plus years, have battled what it is for every person to be free. We've gone through slavery and civil rights and, and immigration. And, and I mean, you can go on and on, but we're struggling to figure out what it looks like because we so value our freedom. Now, that's not true. I mean, that is true not just in the U.S., but it is true going on back. Our, our Christianity was founded on freedom, if you will. You think about the Jews of that day when Jesus came and, and they were held captive by the Romans and they wanted to be set free and they looked to Jesus to set them free. But you know what? Jesus had a little more sustaining freedom in mind for them. Because when Jesus came, what Jesus found was that these very faithful people of God had become so obsessed with their laws and their rules to maintain their sort of religious traditions that those laws had become more important than the truth of God's love. And so Jesus came to say, ah, but when you trust in that truth, that truth will set you free. Now we can go back and say, ah, yeah, but that was then. We know better now. We know all those laws aren't what it means to be a Christian, right? <laughs> but you know what we do? We like order and we like rules. So we say, just give us the rules. If you can just sort of tell me the things I'm supposed to do, then I'll be in. We like to know. And we like to have rules to follow. And you know why we like to have rules to follow? Because that puts us in control. We like to know the rules so that we can check the boxes, get our stamp of approval, and we're the ones in control. Ah, but freedom in the spirit, being a truly devoted follower of Christ is not about being in control, is it? No, it's just the opposite. It's about surrender. It is not about getting it all perfect at all. It's about realizing that we are imperfect and letting God do a new thing in us, trusting God to do a new thing in us. The extent to which we rely on ourselves to get it all right, to meet the rules, the list, to do it all, that's the extent to which we find ourselves trapped limited by our ability to do. 
So then we find ourselves in that very same place, that captive place, that place of the ruts and habits that we've created. Now we have long struggled to embrace the kind of freedom that Jesus offers. It goes way back to, that, to the early church. And, and the story of how that began to shift is a beautiful one. I love it. In the early church now, they were, they were Jews. They were faithful, devout Jews. And when Jesus came, they believed that he was the one that the prophets foretold. He was the one who would come and fulfill all that had been promised. And so they knew that they were just, they needed to continue to be faithful Jews. That believing in Jesus was just an extenuation of their faith. We kind of tend to think, well, then they were Jews, once they were Jews, and the next day they were Christians, they believed in Jesus. But that's not, they were Jews. They were faithful. Jesus was just a part of that. And, and so they continued to live by their laws, and they had extensive laws that they needed to keep. And they were eating laws, and they were, there were laws about be, uh, not being around the unclean, and there were all these rules that they needed to follow. And they continued to do that. And they continued to tell about Jesus and to bring more into the faith, but they believed they were bringing them into the Jewish faith. They were Jews first and, and Christians as a part of that. So what happened in that, as you can imagine, if you're following all these rules, that there were people who were hearing about Jesus who were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And so they were unclean. They were hearing out there. So here, what happens one day is this, well, not one day, but over time, but it, it was the conversion of Cornelius. And I want to tell you that story because it was, it absolutely shifted all of how we know our faith and gives us the picture of that freedom that Christ is offering. So Cornelius was a Gentile, a Roman soldier. And... And so he was what you call a God-fearer. And a God-fearer was a Gentile, not a Jew, not circumcised, not living by the Jewish laws, a Gentile, but he worshipped, he prayed, he gave to the poor, he did all those things of the faith. To us, we would say, well, he's a good Christian. But he was considered um, not in the fold, if you will. <clears throat> Peter, who was leading the movement, the Christian movement, a faithful Jew, um, had a dream one day. And in that dream, there was this spread of animals. They were unclean animals, the kind you don't touch. And in the dream, the Spirit of God said, kill them and eat them. Now, he wasn't to touch them, let alone eat them, and certainly not if you have killed them. And they're, Anyway, you get the idea. So what did Peter say? But he said, no way. No way am I going to do that, Lord. I would never touch those unclean things. And God said clear as day to Peter, do not call unclean what I have called clean. In other words, you've made up these rules, Peter, and they're not my rules. <laughs> And then says to Peter, go to Cornelius. Cornelius, this Roman soldier, this leader who is not a Jew. And so, oh, that's Peter over here having this vision from the Holy Spirit. Cornelius is also having a vision. This, this faithful God-fearer 
has a vision that says, go to Peter and bring him to your house. And he's thinking, Peter, really? I don't think so. He won't come anywhere near me. I'm not clean. But they had both had the vision. And so when Cornelius's men went to ask Peter and invite him over to Cornelius's house, Peter had heard the word of God, and so he said yes. And when he went to Cornelius's house, he preached the good news of Jesus Christ. He preached grace and forgiveness and mercy. And I believe in that moment, not only was that whole household converted, but Peter was himself. Because what happened in that moment was they felt the power of the Holy Spirit. It says we, we experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and everyone in the house was baptized. Amazing. That's what happens when there's more at work than what they brought to the table, more than what Peter brought, more than what Cornelius brought. It was the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So Peter goes back home to Jerusalem to tell the other Jews what's happened. This miracle, this Gentile, we're talking about revolution. This is when it was stopped being a Jewish movement and went exploded to being exactly what God intended. And that was a light to the nations, that all people would know the love of God in their lives. So he goes back and he tells the Jews, and you might expect that as he tells that story, they'd send him off to do a cleansing ritual because he's been in the home of a Gentile. But that's not what they do. Because, Jesus, because Peter explains what has happened in that moment and how he felt the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hear the words of what, what Peter says and how they respond. Peter wraps up his time by saying, if then God gave them the same spirit that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? And if you can put those words on the screen, I want you to see this last part. When they heard this, they were silenced and they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life, that last line. God has given the repentance that leads to life. So what leads to life? Does rule following, does perfection, does getting it all right lead to life, to life in the spirit and the fullness of what Christ has to offer us? No, what re really leads to life? Repentance, repentance. And you know what repentance is? Repentance is when you're heading in one direction and the meaning of the word repent is change direction and go in a new way. So what leads to life? What leads to life is taking a very real assessment of our direction in life. The ruts, the captivity that we are in realizing that's where we are and that we need God and allowing God to do a new thing in us. That is freedom. That's the freedom that Christ offers us to take a very real look at our lives and to realize how much we need God and what God can do in our lives. So I want us to spend a few minutes examining our captivity, if you will to um, imagine that 
we are in, um, in the walls of captivity and the door is locked, but the door is locked on the inside. We have the key. And so I want us to, to look at that and to examine that captivity for a bit, if you will, and to realize um, what it is that, that sort of confines us. And I think one of those things is that we, we create rules for our lives that are not of God. We confine ourselves in ways that God would never confine us. Peter did it. Cornelius did it. They were living very faithful lives, both of them, that they thought were of God. They were living by the rules of keeping their tradition and their community and things that they thought were right. But those rules were not of God. <clears throat> they were rules that were given in order to, for them to experience God, order for them to experience what it was to be a community of faith and the people of God, but they took it to extreme and those rules became more important than the original word of God that God gave them. That word of love and grace and mercy and justice. And so they got it flip-flopped. And we do that sometimes. I, I saw an example of, of rules that we set that are not of God. And, and last summer I, I went to junior high camp out at, at Bridgeport, our our conference Methodist camp and I was a counselor at junior high camp yet so that's an experience and <clears throat> and great fun with my daughter and um, one of the nights we had a hunger banquet maybe you participated in something like this before where okay it was dinner time and the kids were all coming to dinner in the cafeteria where we'd normally gather for a meal and as they entered it was different this day each one got a little ticket and the ticket told them where they would sit. So, and, and it was an experience to help them realize the, sort of, uh, the nature of hunger globally and locally. To help them get a picture of, of what it looks like and, and the haves and have nots and, and those sorts of things. And so as they came in, they got a, a piece of paper. And, and so some got a piece of paper that said upper class. And if you got upper class, and there were only about a, a dozen or so, they were at the head table, tablecloths, the servers, this is camp, mind you, right? Servers and some of the camp interns dressed, in, dressed up in tuxes and ties and various things and served and, and they got, you know, courses, salad and their, their drinks poured and then the, their meal and then the dessert was cheesecake. I mean, it was really not like camp, actually. And, and so that was the... The upper class. Some received a little one, a little piece of paper that said middle class. The middle class got to sit in chairs and eat on their laps. They all got a, a plate and a fork and a cup. They got their food at the little buffet. It was rice, beans, water. But they had enough to eat. And they could eat on their, they had a chair to sit in. The vast majority of those who came to dinner that night got a little piece of paper that put them in the, the masses. <clears throat> they were on the floor. They, there was a big bowl of rice, plain white rice. There was a big bowl of water. There were some utensils, some plates and uh, cups scattered around, but not very many. And they just had to fend for themselves. And that was it. 
that was dinner that night. And with a camp of 250 kids and 220 of them or so were in that masses group, it was very, very interesting. So we debriefed afterwards and, and one of the, the adults facilitated that time and got down into experiences, what they experienced and what they felt and some of those things. And it was very interesting. Partway in, one of the, the girls, the junior high girls, who was at the, the upper class, if you will, table, said, I felt so bad the whole time that I couldn't give my food away. Huh. The facilitator asked her, why couldn't you give your food away? It hadn't dawned on her. Nobody had given rules when they came in. They just got a piece of paper. Nobody had said what they could and couldn't do, what bounds they could cross. She absolutely could have, but it never dawned on her to share her food across that table. Now I think about the limits we put on ourselves that are not of God, but that we place on ourselves. You know, we do it. You can think about it in your own life. But, but sometimes we're trucking along in life in those ruts, that captivity we've created. And we think that's the way it has to be. It doesn't occur to us that it doesn't have to be that way. There's been a lot of work of late in um, sort of neuroscience and how the brain works and, 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 how, and, and how that intersects with change in our lives. And so there's where maybe those disciplines wouldn't have intersected before now in the world of uh, not only psychology and those sorts of things, but also in the world of business and, and uh, leadership and those kinds of things. We're talking about how the brain works. And, and so, you know, we learned somewhere in school that we have different parts to the brain and they do different things. And, and we have sort of three basic parts, the base of the brain and then the, the, the really big part that is the limbic brain. And then, then we have the neocortex. It's the rational brain. It's that part right in front, right? The other two parts of the brain are the emotional brain. Now, I heard one person describe it, and I love this description, that um, it's like um, the emotional brain is like an elephant, a rather large beast, and, and the neocortex is like the rider to that elephant who has the reins, who can give direction, those sorts of things, and all is fine and dandy as long as they're synced. But if that elephant wants to go a different direction, then by God, that elephant is going to go a different direction. And the rider's not going to have a lot of control. And that happens in our own brains. The powerhouse of our brain is the emotional side of our brain. Now, what... Uh, scientists will tell us, is, and psychologists and all that, is, is the work that we do is to get into that rational brain that helps us deal with the emotional brain and, and make wise and thoughtful decisions in our life, right? Because we can get into trouble when the emotional brain takes over. But here's the thing, it continues to be the powerhouse, and it is a creature of habit. Our emotional brain likes ruts. 
it likes things to be in the same, to be the same, to be in those ruts. It creates deep grooves of sameness. It equates safety with sameness. And so it would rather have consistent misery than periodic happiness because it doesn't like change. Change becomes the enemy. Now, when I read that, I thought, oh, no, we're wired to be in ruts. We're wired to be in captivity. We have to work hard not to be in that place. So we may be wired to it. And as we look at our reality, as we look at our captivity, as I said, I wanted to look at that. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the hard questions about our ruts, if you will, the grooves that we have created in our lives. To ask ourselves how we treat our bodies and ourselves. What are those voices that we hear over and over that have created ruts in our minds? How do we treat those who are most important to us? Our kids, our parents, our spouses, our friends, our coworkers. What are the patterns that we have created in those relationships? To ask ourselves about the decisions we make and the assumptions that we make about those decisions. To ask ourselves about how we spend our money and how we spend our time. What are the grooves, the ruts in our lives that are holding us captives? What are the habits that we've created? The addictions, if you will, in our lives, which again, may be alcohol or pornography or drugs or those sorts of addictions, but, but they may be addictions, as I said earlier, that are insidious because they're not so much ones that get labeled addictions, but they are nonetheless grooves, ruts that hold us captive. Dependence on ourselves, our achievements, our worth that we find in those achievements rather than in, in what God calls us to do and be. To assess those is really important for us. But I want you to hear that there is good news. Let me say that there is always good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that good news is that though our brains like ruts, though we can create new grooves for our brains, our emotional brain changes by new, experiencing new things, new experiences. And when we do that, we can begin to change those patterns. And so you can connect the dots there. It is so critical as we begin to look at our own lives and we look at those ruts we've created, the things that hold us captive, if we want to change those ruts, then we need to create new experiences. And this is where we encounter the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we open ourselves to the work that God is doing. And that means those experiences are, are sort of new habits, if you will. It's, it's worshiping every week. It's, it's praying. It's reading our scripture. It's opening the word of God and hearing that. When we get in those habits, we create new habits. And those new habits set us in a new direction. 
They help us to be in the world and not of the world. They help us to align ourselves with the Spirit, to let the Holy Spirit work in us. That's how that repentance happens. You know, I'd love to say that it just happens overnight. You know, you make the decision and you're done. That, that neocortex may be saying, yeah. That rider may be saying, yeah, let's go in that direction. But I tell you what, if that emotional brain is experiencing change, it's going to be traumatic. And it's going to want to go in the same direction it's been going. So it takes time of doing those new experiences to create new grooves that then become the new grooves, ruts, and, and when it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, there is great freedom because it, it is God who brings that fullness of joy and that abundant life in the midst of the reality of our circumstances and helps us to address and to live in our circumstances in a new way with a new life. I want to end with this image of this church and how amazing it is to be standing in this place where I believe that kind of trusting in the Holy Spirit is absolutely in the fabric of this place. Because there were less than 50, and the numbers range, and I'm sure it did each Sunday, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ who were a part of this congregation, a Munger Place Church, right here in this community, and they had long been faithful, and they desired to be faithful and wanted to serve this community, but here they sat in a building that was falling apart, could no longer afford air conditioning, couldn't <clears throat> move forward to serving the community because they were barely in existence, and that group had the courage to say, we don't have to stay like this. You know it had to feel so stuck. We want to be that light on the hill that, that, that God calls us to be, a light, a beacon in this community, and yet feeling so trapped. But that faithful group who said it doesn't have to be this way met a vision that came out of Highland Park Church and came together and said, let's do a new thing. Let's join in what the Holy Spirit is doing. Let's be instruments of the Holy Spirit in this place. And, and that brings me back to the so that. You remember the so that of Jesus? The Holy Spirit is upon me so that I can proclaim good news to the poor and release to the captives. It matters that we live in the Spirit and that we know that freedom of the Spirit and we, and we align ourselves with the Spirit. It matters not only for our own saving and our own wholeness and health and healing and, and experience of God's presence in our lives, and that matters for each individual one of us, but it matters not only for that, but because when we do that, then we become instruments of God in the world. We become those who are then proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and of God's love. We become those who, who proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set the oppressed free. We become instruments when we allow God to do a new thing in us. And isn't that what it's all about? Bringing about the world that God imagines and allowing us ourselves to be instruments of God in that work. By the grace of God, may it be so. Let us pray.
So God, you, you do promise us new life. You promise us fullness of joy, even in the midst of our circumstances. You give us light in darkness. You lead us by still waters. You fill us and sustain us. And at the same time, God, you, you call us to serve, to be a light to others. And in the midst of this world, in the midst of our lives, it is so easy to get into a rut, a pattern that is not of you. So I pray, God, you will work in each of our lives, that we will hear you today, that we will feel your powerful Holy Spirit at work in us, that we will surrender to you so that you might do a new thing in us, and we will know the freedom you offer us. I pray in the holy and gracious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.